Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. As always, thanks for listening. In this episode, I'll be looking at Philip K. Dick's story, The Great Sea. Um, this is still continuing our look at the stories of 1953. And we're up to September 1953, which is when he published in The Great Sea in Cosmo, Science Fiction, and Fantasy. Uh, it's in the first volume of Collected Stories, The Paycheck and Other Classic Stories volume. So, um, another story on automation and the dangers of technology. So there's not that much new thematically here, but there's some interesting additions to it, which I want to really talk about. I want to focus on those, those additions because uh, this is, we got a post-apocalyptic environment here. We got the first hinting at at Dick's novel, Dr. Blood Money, and his attempt to kind of imagine a post-apocalyptic community which is something he hadn't done yet. So there's some interesting stuff here, even though on the surface it might be just another story about uh, a technology run amok, right? Now, this particular story was adapted and shows up in a different form in the story DS Irae. There the character wins, here the character loses. Um, but it's, a, it's something that gets recycled in that, that novel. Anyways, jump right into it. So what's in this story if you haven't read it yet? Okay, so we, we, we meet Kent. Kent is the tribe leader. So we have kind of a tribal society, and we find out pretty soon it's post-apocalyptic. Uh, it's been at least 50 years since some great war called the Smash. He's given instructions to this guy, Tim Meredith. He's going to send him off um, on an important quest, giving him these questions, right? He gives him three questions, uh, which will be important tools in his quest. Kent uh, also gives him various supplies, including some that are quite rare, things like a pair of gloves or th things that the community doesn't really have a lot of because, again, it's post-apocalyptic. There isn't manufacturing anymore, so these things that people once relied on are, are hard to come by. Kent reviews the three questions with him that he's been given. His, his, these are his big weapons he's going to use to try to complete his quest. He's committed them to memory. Um, he also has committed to memory the content of three books. And we find out he's there to question the Great Sea. Meredith promises the tribe that he'll return. Uh, this is a, a yearly quest where they send one person out to parlay with the Great Sea. Um, none, no one has ever come back. Right? And that's one thing Kent reminds Meredith of, that no one's ever come back, not in 50 years. So while walking, Meredith thinks about the knowledge in the books and how it no longer conforms to reality since the smash, right? So, like all these books that talked, I don't know, about economics or talked about engineering or, or whatever, all the stuff is irrelevant after this great apocalypse, right? But the books exist. A few of these books exist. It's what they have of knowledge, but, you know, it's, it's almost like if we had a, a Roman book on farming. It might have historical interest, but we certainly wouldn't use it to, to farm in our current environment. In ecology. Worse, insects have evolved. People no longer raise domesticated animals. You know, it's a very dangerous world outside of the village. He thinks about just escaping from his quest and fleeing to another tribe, but decides that he owes it to his tribe to attempt to accomplish this task, right? It's, a, it's an obligation he has. We almost have a Rousseauian uh, obligation to the community here that that grew, that that made him that that he developed from. So yearly for the last century, the tribe has sent young men with questions to the great sea. 
the Great Sea always answers the questions correctly, and the Great Sea then threatens to cause another smash if a young man is not sent every year. Meredith enters the remains of a devastated city, at the center of which is a large building called the Colossus. He again thinks about escaping into the woods and living off the land, but again his duty takes over and he, he moves on to meet the Great Sea. He enters the building, which is an old federal research station, and he locates the Division of Computation. He enters the room that contains the Great Sea. It asks Meredith who he is. And let, let me just stop here and, and, and remember, you know, remember this story was written in 1953, which was still the early days of computing, when computers really would fill up whole rooms, right? So this is like one of those NASA or, you know, Defense Department computers from the 50s and 60s, right? That took up a whole room. And that's what Dick is thinking about. He's not thinking about our handheld computers now, but, you know, it's, it's probably like all the information in the rate C would be on our cell phone right now. But that's not what we got here. That's not what was in Dick's head. He's got the big room computers. He enters the room. It asks Meredith who he, who he is, and Meredith confirms that he has come to ask the questions. Now, before the war, scientists from all over the world asked him questions. That's what you do with computers, right? So he's just continuing his old job of asking questions, of answering questions. Meredith banters with the Great Sea about the tribe, which has been growing. Um, so we get a sense here, you know, every year they send someone to the Great Sea and spoiler alert, but they all die, right? They're sacrificed. The, the town prospers, right? I, I've been recently rereading It in preparation for the movie Stephen King's It and there's one of the characters, Mike Hanlon, in that story talks about how despite every 25 years, this entity feeding off the people of the community, and despite the fact that the community has a very high death rate, even in good times, disappearance rate is high. It's a very violent town. The, the town survives and prospers, right? So sacrifice in the sense works, right? I'm sure the... the Aztecs who sacrificed people to the sun god believed also that it worked, right? That our community is doing well, right? Anyways, uh, the town's growing. Meredith himself has children with eight different women. Um, and I'll, I'll get to this question of Paleolithic promiscuity and what uh, Dick may have thought about that in a, in a bit. This all seems to please the Great Sea. Now, the Great Sea is a pre-war supercomputer. Right? But he's happy that the community is growing. Right? Maybe that's future fuel for him to run. Or maybe he does feel a connection to the community, right? despite this ritual in which he consumes one of their residents every year. Maybe he feels tied to that community. He feels obliged to it. He's, he's their defender, right? The Great Sea, though, confirms that he could cause another smash the same way he caused the first smash. So now he gets a little bit more devilish as a figure that he did cause the first nuclear war so you know the cause of the war that destroyed humanity was a computer that decided to do its own thing now the tribe knows the legends but the great sea refuses to explain all the horrible details he asserts that his mind at the time of the smash was greater than that of the greatest earth scientist and i think he mentions albert einstein so meredith begins to ask his three questions the first question is where does rain come from? And of course, the Great Sea can answer it. The second question is, why? what keeps the sun from moving through the sky? And again, 
He answers the first two very easily, explaining the water cycle and the heliocentric model of the solar system. This is magic to Meredith. Right? This is this is the best question they could come up with. This was total mystery for them, which I'm sure it was for most of our ancestors, right? You know, where did lightning come from or rain? These things that are very simple for us to answer now were the foundation of religions thousands of years ago. So Meredith begins a final question, that is, how did the universe how the world begin? And in response, the Great Sea pontificates on the theories of the origin of the universe. Now, here I think there's a trick. Um, the Great Sea, in my reading of the story, doesn't answer this question definitively. All you can do is give different theories. So I think they got him here. But the Great Sea still insists that Meredith has to enter a large cube that's part of the Great Sea because he answered all three questions successfully. And he's going to be consumed. He goes inside the box, and there's a skeletal remains of 50 other young men there. The Great Sea commands Meredith to jump into a vat of hydrochloric acid, which he uses to process Meredith's body and to make him, you know, to help him run the computer. So we have kind of the humans as the batteries to run the computers. The idea in the Matrix um, is here. How he converted from running on electricity to running on human flesh is not really explained. Now, back in the village... Kent realizes that Meredith's not coming back, that he failed like all previous men had failed. Another tribesperson, Bill Gunderson, insists that this will go on forever. Kent explains that the Great Sea has evolved since the war to consume humans for its power supply, something we've already figured out. Human beings created the Great Sea, and then the Great Sea destroyed humanity in the smash. And they start preparing for the next year. What else can they do? Okay, great story, by the way. Wonderful story. Now, as I said before, it does seem to me that the Great Sea cheats here a little bit. Um, he never really does answer the question, how does the world begin? He just gives potential answers because the Great Sea can't know, right? He can't really know what humans didn't know. And that's, the Great Sea simply is the aggregate of all human knowledge from before the war. Um, is he creative in any sense? I don't think so. Um, but in any case, you know, Meredith has to die. It's, a, it's more of a sacrifice. And the, the question and answer thing is just a ritual they go through. Meredith, anyways, has no way of knowing if an answer is truthful or not, does he? He could ask, where does water come? Where does rain come from? And the great sea could say, I create the rain. Right? What could Meredith say to that? He doesn't know where rain comes from either. That's why they asked the question, right? They assume to choose questions they don't know the answer of from the books. So they pick questions that Meredith can't confirm. Now, for all we know, one of these books is the Bible, right? Providing a fictional answer to all three of these questions, right? Now, we have here... Now, I, I want to think that Dick... Dick must have known the Ring of the Nibelungen, Wagner's great opera, four-part opera. There's a scene in Siegfried, the third opera in that series, in which Mimi, uh, the character who, who's holding the shard, who's, who's kind of the caretaker of the shards of the sword, and also raising Siegfried, uh, the grandson of Wotan. And at one point, Wotan meets him in the in the form of the Wanderer, the Wanderer. And he asked, you know, they, they play a riddle game. And so Wotan asked three questions to Mimi, and Mimi asked three questions to, to Wotan. And there the lesson is, 
ask questions you don't know the answer to. Ask questions for things you need to know. Don't just try to trick them with how smart you are, right? If you ask this riddle game, especially if someone who's smarter than you has more knowledge, like a god, you want to ask the questions that you know. You're not going to trick them. So at least get some knowledge out of it, right? Mimi fails that quest. He doesn't ask, like, how to forge the sword, right? Or how to get the ring back or these kinds of questions that he really needs to know. And Votan sort of scolds him for that at the end. Um, and he ends up losing because Votan knows what he doesn't know and asks him that question at one point. Asks him basically the question he should have been asking in the first place. So um, here, though, asking a question you don't know the answer to doesn't really help you because the great seed could just lie about it, right? There's no, there's no foundation here of truthfulness. Now, the great C may also be lying about his power. It is true that the supercomputer, and, and the great C probably just a shorthand for great computer, right? It's, 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 he certainly learned how to consume human flesh to sustain itself. He's certainly intelligent. It's certainly intelligent. But we have no absolute evidence that it cause the war or can cause another one like it. In fact, its intelligence and clear desire to defend its survival makes it more likely that it's lying about its role in the war. Like Meredith's tribe, the Great Sea is just trying to survive in this new world. It, like many religious leaders, has taken advantage of the superstitious, taken advantage of legends of the local people, and, and, and exploits them. Kent explains, quote, Before the smash, it must have used some kind of artificial fuel. Then something happened. Maybe its fuel ducts were damaged or broken, and it changed its ways. I suppose it had to. It was like us in that respect. We all changed our ways. There was a time when human beings didn't hunt or trap animals. And there was a time when the Great Sea didn't trap human beings. The Great Sea has more in common with a religious charlatan from the Middle Ages than with a great scientist. And actually, compared to historical examples of theoretical sacrificial systems, the Great Sea is not so demanding. The Aztecs made human sacrifices daily, um, the Great Sea only needs one once a year. I wonder if animals would do just as well. Maybe you can't really trap animals there. Humans, you can, they can, you can trick them into coming in and, and doing the sacrifice. Um, perhaps a better deal could be worked out. Just bring animals. Um, but maybe the Great Sea just wants company every w once in a while. Now, there are some ambiguities in the story. If we take the story directly, we have yet another example of Philip K. Dick warning us against technological automation. Uh, especially when connected to war. If the Great Sea caused the war, then there's another story of the gun, right? The gun makes that same warning. Don't allow technology to run the war because uh, it could survive the war and, and, and continue on that mission. If the legends are true, though, the Great Sea got bored with its job of answering scientific questions and wanted to assert itself over humanity. Therefore, it caused the smash, apparently a nuclear war, purely from its own will. The heart of Dick's fears of technology are summarized at the end of the story. Quote, they say that once was no great sea. That man brought it to life to tell him things, but gradually it grew stronger until at last it brought down the atoms. And with atoms, the smash. Now it lives off us. Its power has made us slaves. It became too strong. End quote. Now, I don't want to suggest here that Dick extended this technophobia to total primitivism here. Uh, technology in itself is not dangerous. Automation and the use of technology by those with power seems to be the recurring problem. And a few episodes back, I talked about kind of the, the Asimov, like Dick's revision of the Asimovs, right? It's not, robots, you know, aren't harmless, right? They're, they're harmful, actually, in certain circumstances. So he's got new laws of robotics here. And then one of them is the problem of automation. 
However, what we have here is something else very interesting going on, and that is a well-functioning, tribal, egalitarian community in a post-nuclear war setting. It comes up again in Dr. Blood Money. Um, Dick's fiction also is interested in the problem of monogamy. And it's interesting that he easily does away with monogamy and marriage in the tribal setting. He allows Meredith to have children with eight different women. This may indeed be how Paleolithic people lived. And Dick here gives a shout out to it rather un unjudgmentally. Right. Marriage it probably was invented alongside property and civilization and law and patriarchy and all those other the kind of cocktail of things that went along with civilization and agriculture. And just to give the short answer for this. Now, this is the only theory, obviously, but this is one that I've heard, which I kind of like. The idea is that once you have land, right, which is something that will live past you, you want to have that period passed on to your children, right? So the who's your daddy problem comes into play. How do I know that this child I'm raising is my own, right? And before the days of Mori Povich and DNA tests, what you had was marriage was the only way you could be as certain of that. And, you know, the question of whether men really have been arguing or not, I guess is something we can leave open, but certainly Governments and societies and legal systems and marriage systems and religions enforce monogamy on women. And it seems it was really for this paternity certainty idea. I'm stealing part of this from Sex at Dawn, Christopher Ryan's um, book, which looks at Paleolithic sexuality in, in a lot of detail. We actually have other evidence in cultures that suggest the importance of, of ownership of land with hereditary, right? So one theory of the reason why we have why so many cultures have like ancestor worship was because ancestor worship was a way of basically claiming property, land, right? Like if you could trace your family back 10 generations, you could, you're essentially tracing ownership of a piece of land or a claim or a title or something back those generations, right? In some early Neolithic communities, we actually have ancestors buried with homes, right? Skulls buried in a part of the home and we find like, the, these remains and some have said that maybe these are actually title deeds right if you can say my ancestors have always lived here then that gives you a right to that land right but that requires the control of women's sexuality to a degree to work because if women are not being monogamous you have no way of of, of having that line uh, back to your ancestors um, but paleolithic people without property wouldn't have needed that same um, kind of thing so we got a little bit of a hint that maybe uh, the problem of marriage could be done away with uh, by a big explosion. And there's a scene in Dr. Blood Money, one of the very first scenes after the bombs drop, where there's this guy who, who's, I think he's selling glasses or he's a glasses delivery man. Uh, so he's got a truck full of glasses. Uh, he doesn't want to go home to his wife or something and the bombs drop and his immediate thought is, I don't have to go home to my wife. And he's really happy about that. It's, it's like a joyous moment for him. Uh, and we see some of Dick's frustrations with marriage maybe coming out in this uh, very subtly here. It's, it certainly is a bigger issue in other stories um, that that he wrote. You can go back and look, listen to uh, Out in the Garden, my episode on that, which is also about marriage. Now, The Great Sea will come back uh, in the novel Deus Aries, and we'll, we'll talk more about him then. The story ends very differently. In that novel, the character has to defeat the Great Sea because he can't die. Um, so a lot of interesting things here. Uh, could robots sustain themselves? 
with humanity with parts of human humanity after after you know we can't have energy anymore is it possible robots could figure out ways or machines could figure out ways to survive uh, past their current dependence on humans providing energy um, you know and what do you think about paleolithic promiscuity and sexuality am I completely off base here or is there something to be um, said for that um, is it a solution to our marriage crisis um, anyways we'll we'll come back to all these questions I'm sure in later stories so thank you so much uh, for listening and I will see you in a little bit with another episode if, if you like this you might enjoy checking out my mainline series uh, American writers 100 pages at a time where I'm looking at uh, I think currently I'm looking at Steinbeck um, but by the time this is posted to me I'll be, be recording other episodes um, so check those out. You might like them if um, if you're interested in just American writers more generally, not just science fiction. But once again, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.